0: Hey folks! A couple of quick announcements. Jim and I are doing a live two-hour show in New York City in just about a month, Saturday, November 12th, at the Heartland Brewery on West 43rd Street in Times Square. The event starts at 11 a.m. and includes lunch. We're going to be talking about the history of unbuilt Disney attractions. All kinds of super interesting stuff Jim and I have been digging through the Disney archives. Uh, looking for fun stories to tell. Some of them, I think, have never been, uh, never actually been, uh, been told before. I'm really looking forward to that. Get more details at etccustomevents.com. This is our second live event. The first one sold out, so space is limited. And like the first one, we are working with etccustomevents in New York. Again, etccustomevents.com. Also, don't forget that we're testing a travel agency for a potential live event. In Disney World in 2017, the travel agency that we're testing is Storybook Destinations, run by our friend Tammy Whiting. Readers of the unofficial guide rate, Tammy is one of the 15 best travel agents in the country, so we think this is a pretty good place to start. Uh, If you have a chance, if you're planning your next Disney trip, go to storybookdestinations.com slash DisneyDish, and give them a try and let us know how they work for you. And with that, on with the show. Welcome back to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. This is our second show for October 2016. And boy, oh boy, it's a good one. Let me bring in one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: Oh, I'm getting out of the wind. Oh, (laughs)
0: that's right. As we're recording this, uh, Disney World is just recovering from Hurricane Matthew, right?
1: Yeah. And in fact, we had one of our listeners, a Patrick Redbeard25, he reached out through Twitter, I guess just this morning, and said that he and his family are staying at Animal Kingdom Lodge during the storm, and he wanted to know if we had any stories about how Disney hurricane proofs the resort.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! I've been through a couple of hurricanes, several hurricanes, living in Florida, but uh, but none in Disney. So, what's the uh, what's the story, Jim?
1: Well, it actually is something that's uh, literally built into the building of the parks. Back in two thousand. Fourteen, uh, actually 2013, uh, they took us, myself and Nancy, through the construction site of Diagon Alley, and they were still basically structural steel, a lot of this, and they told the story about they had just done the hurricane test, which... You know, if you can believe it involves basically setting up a cannon with a 2x4. And and the notion is you fire the 2x4 out of the cannon at like 300 miles an hour because that's supposedly the force that a projectile that's caught in a Category 5 hurricane You know, but you you shoot it into a show building, and if it withstands it, you then, like, okay, so we can now put the theming and the signage in and that sort of thing, because we know the building itself will stand up to this force. And Disney's been doing this since construction of the resort in Florida started going vertical in, in 1969, and there's been... All of this talk about this is only the fourth time that Disney World is closed for a hurricane, and that's not entirely true. August of 85, the Disney Resort actually closed at 5 p.m. that day because Hurricane Elena uh, was a tropical cyclone that eventually grew to Category 3, was bearing down on on Central Florida. And then 10 years later, August uh, 2nd of 1995, Hurricane Aaron, that time around they did opted to open the parks late. The three parks that they had then went with an 11 a.m. close so they could get in and take care of the you know the various storm damage. But the first time the parks actually officially fully closed down was Hurricane Floyd, and that was in September 14, 1999. There was a Category 4 storm coming out of the Bahamas and seemingly aimed straight at Central Florida. Mm-hmm. So Disney World closes for the first time. And what's kind of interesting is how they then decided, all right, who's in jeopardy here? You know, for example, they they approached guests who were staying in a wing of the All Star Sports and just kind of went, you know, you're kind of in a low lying area and we're gonna evacuate you guys to the convention center at Coronado Springs. They set up cots and stuff like that. They didn't do that this time. No, but at the same time they went through the parks and they made decisions about what could potentially get caught up in a storm. And so, Mm -hmm. for example, is that day, if you were in the parks prior to the closing, you walk through like MGM and they had pulled all of the signage, all of those movie theater type letter signs down.
0: I was a little intrigued by the difference this year versus in previous years where uh, regarding food and provisions. So (laughs) a friend of of ours, a friend of ours, Mike Scopa, was Mm. in Disney World during a hurricane one time and, If I recall the story correctly, Mike said that they came around with boxed meals Mm -hmm. for people to eat during the storm. So they were essentially handing them out. I think Mike was at one of the all-star resorts when this happened. Mm -hmm. This year was a little bit different. They were charging $13.
1: Yeah, and boy, uh, that – I don't know if you've seen the pictures on social media where it's like your dry white bread sandwich and your bag of pretzels and your apple and –
0: it made an airline meal look enticing.
1: Coupled with the fact that no beverage, and it's just one of these things from from a PR point of view, this is going to kind of bite Disney in the butt. Though, weirdly enough, all of these images seem to be coming out of Port Orleans.
0: Yeah, it looked like Calcutta. You saw the scenes on, on social media. Yeah. The lines for these things that go like a quarter of a mile or whatever.
1: Going forward here, I'm going to be fascinated to hear from folks who actually get out into the parks after this because i'm I'm sure you've seen some of the images that were out there for yesterday where, where the teams had actually gotten into the park on wednesday night and started doing prep so every banner every flag anything that could be a sail like object for the storm was gone it was already down decorative items that couldn't be removed were tied off Mm-hmm. You know how Disney's gotten into this practice of whenever they're working on a building and they, they have a facade that they're working on to cover all of the gantry and that sort of stuff, they've begun doing these sort of printed versions of the exterior of the building, which they then hang on all of the facade.
0: Yeah, the theme scrims. Yeah, they, the,
1: yeah, um, the theme yeah. scrims. Those all came down.
0: Yeah, the guitar. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So I'm going to just be fascinated to hear what, People who get into Animal Kingdom tomorrow, they're going to say, because it's like, first of all, I want to know what happened to the floating mountains. Are they still floating?
0: Ooh, they're probably in one of the worst periods of construction for that because all of the exterior work is done, yeah. but it's not its not completed. So they haven't had a chance to clean up all... Oh, I bet you they spent the last couple of days just pulling like lumber and stuff like that off the construction. Oh,
1: I hope <laughs> so. And likewise, horticulture's been in there just doing the initial groundwork for the plantings and all that.
0: Speaking of Animal Kingdom and new stuff, uh, you think this is going to delay the opening of Rivers of Light?
1: (laughs) Are you? You've been hearing the same thing I'm hearing now. The the April now is November? November?
0: I heard late, late, late October, early November, but uh, they're probably going to spend most of the next week just sort of recovering from the storm, I'm thinking. And beyond that, one of the big questions that I heard was how much the infrastructure that they put in may or may not be damaged based on the storm. So from what I understand, the floats are using GPS and other sort of in-park beacons Mm -hmm. to figure out where they are in relationship both to the edges of the lake and to each other. But they're, I think they're going to need to go back and retest all of that. Oh, no doubt. So I think you're probably, that's going to delay them, I think. I mean, there's no way that they're really going to get people in to start testing until, let's say, Monday, which would be the 10th. It's probably going to take them at least till the 17th to figure out or to assess the damage, and let's let's face it, Rivers of Light is not going to be one of the high-priority items in case there is is any damage in Walt Disney World. So, you know, end of this month, early November, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think. I have heard that they've successfully tested the show a few times.
1: The reason that they wanted to get it running for November is, you know, the holiday crowds will be arriving soon, which it brings us in a weird sort of way to Disney Springs, because... You saw the story that broke this week about the third parking structure, right?
0: Yeah, I think uh, Laurel wants to call it uh, the Pamplemousse, which is, I think, French for, for grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same theme, right? No,
1: that's good. Orange, lime, and the Pamplemousse. Okay. Pamplemousse, yeah. exactly. Okay,
0: good. Wow. You know, like half the people go there will be, how'd they come up with that name? Yeah. You know, no, we, uh, we were just there, not last week, but the week before. Mm-hmm. And I have this goal to eat in every single Disney restaurant, food cart, and kiosk. Mm-hmm. And so there were a couple I hadn't hadn't tried. I th- tried the new Blaze Pizzeria. I finally got back to Deluxe Burger. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of other small places that uh, that we tried. We can talk about that. Yeah, so do, do you want to talk about that? We'll talk about food at Walt Disney World? Yeah, let's do that. The first place I went to that I was really excited for was Blaze Pizzeria. Pizza's sort of a sore topic for disney because i don't think they do it particularly well there's (laughs) vianapolis in epcot that does pretty good pizza but beyond that in terms of true pizza not flatbreads or anything like that disney doesn't really do pizza well Mm -hmm. right so i was interested to see how how this thing turned out it sort of follows the concept that you're familiar with moe's southwest yeah and, and so Moe's is sort of like build your own burrito or, or taco bowl or salad or whatever, which is really based on essentially the Subway sandwich model. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you walk in, you pick a bread, they kind of walk you down an assembly line at the, at the end of your sandwich. Same thing for Moe's, and it's the same thing for, for Blaze. So you pick the kind of dough you want. They've got a, a thin crust, they've got a traditional, and then they've got sort of a thicker pan style. Then they've got a um, bunch of different sauces that you pick and a bunch of different toppings. And it's pretty much any topping that you could want. So whether it's sausages or, you know, all these strange vegetables or uh, leafy greens, whatever, you could essentially have a salad if you wanted on top of the bread. But the interesting thing about it is they cook the pizza in three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which, I mean, it goes from dough to brick oven charred Mm -hmm. in 180 seconds, which is really kind of impressive. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you think about how long it takes to just microwave a pizza. I mean, it's a, it's a good two minutes to microwave a pizza. Mm-hmm. So to get a uh, an actual baked pizza in, you know, another minute after that, really not bad at all. Most of the pizza started around 10 bucks. I think the more expensive ones, you can add a couple more bucks onto that. But, you know, 10 bucks for a, a really good-sized pizza. I had you know, the meat-eater pizza, pepperoni, meatballs, mozzarella, red sauce. Mm-hmm. They're sort of their fluffy dough. Which added a couple more bucks into it, but it was delicious. I'm telling you, Jim, it was, it was fantastic. Laurel had um, a vegan one with no cheese or whatever. The crust is very good. It's got mm-hmm. that brick oven taste to it. It was done in three minutes. They give you a buzzer, and I don't even know why, because by the time you pay mm-hmm. and you know find a table, you can essentially just walk back and pick up your pizza. But I think I think it's better than Viennapoli. Wow yeah the toppings are sort of uneven i've talked to people who've been there before like i had a ton of toppings Mm -hmm. and the toppings were fully cooked through in the three minutes i've heard that when blaze originally opened up they were going a little light on the toppings because they were concerned that not everything would be cooked in the time it takes to pass the dough through the oven but i think they've got more comfortable with that i had no problem with the with the toppings the food was delicious the service was excellent they do this weird picnic bench-style seating. So you know what? Uh, how they do seating over at Beer Garden in Germany? Mm-hmm. They do the, essentially the same thing at Blaze. So you could be at a table with other people if it gets really crowded, which is, I guess, is fine. I mean, you're eating pizza. It's what the heck. As far as I'm concerned, you can share slices. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it, I thought it was really really good. I would definitely go back again. It's a little expensive, I guess, for a family. I don't know. Is it really expensive? Ten dollars a person? Twelve dollars a person? <laughs> No, you well, know, you
1: know, if, if we're going by our thirteen dollar storm, yeah,
0: <laughs> it's just down, downright affordable, affordable. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, you know, what? I, I think it's, I think it's probably in the middle. It's not, it's not inexpensive, but it's not expensive either. For forty bucks, that's the, like a uh, over at Via Napoli a uh, messy Me- metro, mm-hmm. you know, one of those huge pizzas. I think that's roughly the same cost. But yeah, but I liked it quite a bit. I think it's high quality stuff. Then in the same night, Jim, mm-hmm. I went over to Deluxe Burger which Gluttony is, is one or two of the, dead, the Deadly Sins. I, th- I think it's two. I th- I,
1: well, at least there's two chins involved.
0: <laughs> it's listed as one, but I feel like on the night that I was there, mm-hmm. I actually qualified as two Deadly Sins. So I go in there. We mm-hmm. like, and we had walked around Disney Springs for like an hour to sort of let the Blaze pizza sort of settle, and I didn't eat all of the pizza. Mm-hmm. But Jim, so I've got to tell you, I've been to expensive burger places around the world. Oh, like, yeah. I've told you my story about the $53 burger in Norway, right? Yes, yes. They've got nothing on the cost of hamburgers at Deluxe Burger. So Laurel and I each got a milkshake and a burger, mm-hmm. and it was almost $60. Ooh. It's a 15 You know the scene in Pulp Fiction where John Travolta goes, I got to taste what a $5 milkshake is like? Mm-hmm. Imagine that, but adjusted for inflation, it's a $15 milkshake. Now, and granted, it had some alcohol in it. Laurel's did. Mm-hmm. I got the birthday cake milkshake which I like birthday cake-flavored things. Mm-hmm. Back when Cold Stone, the ice cream place, opened up and they did cake batter, I used to get that and mix in some Kit Kat bars just mm-hmm. for the right thing. Because, you know, you want to be diabetic in your 20s. But I, I like cake batter-flavored things. So I got the cake, cake batter-flavored milkshake, which was, again, like 12 bucks. And they do a southern-style burger with a fried green tomato, pimento cheese bacon and in the, in the regular burger. And it was delicious, let me tell you. It was it was fantastic. I would have eaten the whole thing if I was even moderately hungry, but also delicious. The cake batter thing is so sweet to the gym. It, it is like eating a piece of cake, and and they're all huge portion sizes. But again, everything was it was delicious.
1: Just over at Universal City Walk, they've just recently opened Toothsome's Chocolate Emporium and Savory Feast Kitchen, a name that just trips off of the tongue. But they also do milkshakes there. In fact, my friend Angela Ragno and I went there two weeks ago prior to the opening. And we had this wonderful server who did a great job of setting the scene for the, the, the and sort of walking us through the facility. And he eventually convinced us. To get dessert, which and what they do there are the signature milkshakes, okay. and eventually convince Angela to get the one of their most popular offerings is a red velvet cupcake
0: milkshake. Red velvet cupcake milkshake. Okay, so cherry, chocolate, cherry. Okay, all right, go ahead.
1: It arrives at the table. I swear, it's a quart container.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like you, you can't you can't eat that much. Well, no,
1: no, wait, it gets worse. All right, what they've done is it's a and they've taken an entire red velvet cupcake and pureed it with the shake. All right, so that's inside the container.
0: It's like an episode of Will It Blend, you know? <laughs> sure,
1: absolutely. But then on top of this is an actual full-sized red velvet cupcake that somebody has stuck a straw through into the milkshake. And then to sort of spackle everything into place, there's this lip uh, around the, the, the lip of the container. They have put this circle of whipped cream covered with sprinkles mm-hmm. to sort of adhere the cupcake on top to the beverage. And, you know, they bring it to the table and it's like, and they present it. Ta-da! And poor Angela, who weighs all of 90 pounds, it's just, it was one of these things where it's like, it was very rich, but it was like she took two and three sips, and then it's like, I'm full. I have an entire cupcake that I now have no clue as to how to take out of this place because it's got whipped cream all over the bottom. And that was the thing. You eventually just sort of, and I was an idiot. I, I went and had the. The key lime pie shake. I swear to God, a key lime Is it like pie. Like
0: a slice of pie mixed in with vanilla ice cream.
1: Well, no, actually, that that was the other thing I really hadn't thought through. Again, it was right there in the menu. It said starts off with sour cream ice cream. Have you ever tasted sour cream oh, ice cream? I
0: love sour cream ice cream.
1: Okay, because I hadn't, and I guess they take a piece of key lime pie and put it in with the sour cream ice cream, and it was just sort mm-hmm. of like, took one sip, and then it was like, I could, oops, I mean, it was just, yeah. you know, very thick and it, very sour. It's
0: tart, it's yeah. Tart, yeah. yeah. I, like the, I like sour cream ice cream mixed in with a fruit, and I think mm-hmm. that's where it goes well together, because it does emulate uh, a cheesecake flavor mm-hmm. in that case. Yeah, but it's, I mean, number one, I think the portion sizes here are huge. Yeah, too. yeah. I don't even want to know how much sugar is in those oh,
1: things. as a new diabetic, that's the thing. It's just sort of like I walk to a world where it's like, can't have that, can't have that. And it's like Tootsums, you know, to me was just sort of like, I felt like a lot.
0: <laughs> you know, It was just sort of like, <laughs> don't look back, don't look back.
1: Instead of turning the salt into a giant pile of sugar.
0: I thought Deluxe was great. Mm-hmm. I thought the burger was was very good. Mm-hmm. For what it was. Service was good. They actually cook everything to order, mm-hmm. so it's not like the burger is sitting around waiting for you know someone to walk into the, the door. Everything is cooked to order. So there's a little bit of time it takes to actually get served. But I like mm-hmm. uh, I like those quite a bit. The other interesting thing that we saw, so we were walking all around Disney Springs, you know, looking at the new shops that had opened. Mm-hmm. We kind of made our way over to the west side, over where they've got the parking areas for Cirque du Soleil. They've got the, you know, the food trucks and stuff there. We walked by Disney Quest, Gym, mm-hmm. and we were still trying to figure out, is NBA City ever going to replace it, or is that thing just dead?
1: If you remember how the timing actually broke down... For all of this, Disney announced that the NBA experience, you know, they announced that it's going to be coming in and it's a -a one-of-a-kind destination, hands-on activities, fun for the whole family, put you in the middle of NBA game action. Then the very next day, Universal announces that they're closing NBA City which uh, had opened up in August of 99 as part of the CityWalk project over there and had been very, very successful for years. In fact, you know, twice the Orlando Sentinel awarded the best theme breast in Orlando to NBA City. Really? Yeah. And then, you know, there was this weird, like, two-week period where people were like, okay, so where is this going to go? And finally Disney announces, okay, Disney Quest will be closing, uh, and that's where NBA experience will go. And... Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the parking garage, the very first floor of the the Orange parking garage opens uh, middle of that month. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until December of that year where now they've gone from 1,700 spaces to 4,000 spaces to eventually the following spring would be up to the full 6,000 spaces. We began to hear stories about how the NBA and Disney were kind of bumping heads over the NBA experience thing because... Disney obviously wanted them to move into the old Disney Quest building. And if you look at the the way it's described, the restaurant on the upper floors and yada yada, anybody who's been into NBA City, who, who walks into that space... It's pretty much the restaurant that was there before, but with some really wonderful steampunk touches. The bar's in the same place, bathroom's still in the same place, still has the same open floor to this, or open space to the second floor, but it's yep. been entirely rethemed. And because it was just universal, working amongst itself between creative and food, they got that thing open at 14 months, Lynn contrast that with Disney, because they had to deal with the NBA, Uh by December, it's like, no, we want a brand new building. You tear down Disney Quest and sure, we'll be happy to build it there. In fact, we'd love to have our facility just down the street from Splitsville. And Disney's like, no, no, that would mean we'd have to put a giant crane next to, you know, we're doing demo right next to our giant parking garage that we just built to make this thing as smooth as possible You know, for people to get easy to get out. It's like, we're not doing that. And so now, while nobody has officially said this project is dead, right now staffers, I mean, folks who were working at Disney Quest were told, look, we're closing in 2016. And start looking elsewhere on property for jobs because we're closing this. And this is going to be an NBA experience. Last time I heard, everyone at Disney Quest had been told, look, your job is safe through 2017, at the very least. Yeah. These are the poor people who as far back as 2006 were told, oh, by the way, you're closing in 2008. (laughs) It's one of these things where it's like, oh, dear, where I'm working is closing. I should go find cardboard boxes to pack my Uh, – screw it. This is never closing. That's the sad part. I think the next hurricane that hit Disney World, we had a Category 6, flat in the place. Disney Quest will still be standing.
0: (laughs) It'll be the last thing to go. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any way that they bring in a crane mm-hmm. to demo that unless they're doing the parking garage right next to Orange at the same time. That's that's really, really tight.
1: The third parking garage is actually being built on the other side of Buena Vista Drive. It's out behind the Speedway gas station in between right, right, right. there and the casting center. So to Disney's way of thinking, they're going to try to make it as easy as possible particularly for the next year or so, to get in and out of uh, Disney Springs, because they want locals, they want people vacationing at Walt Disney World to go there, because they haven't made anywhere near the, the foot traffic the projections they thought. Really? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, attendance is down, so...
1: Oh, I get that, I get that. But at the same time, they had convinced themselves that by building the highway ramp and these parking garages... That locals would start coming out to Disney Springs, and so far that hasn't happened.
0: You know, it's it's fairly crowded. It, it gets crowded around 6 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was there on this last trip. I was there early. I was a late morning, early afternoon, late afternoon, mm-hmm. and evening. So, so three separate times, four different periods. It's very manageable from late morning through late afternoon. Like, we did our, you know, Blaze Pizza thing. hmm like around four thirty. and very, very light crowds. You could tell it was just people with who were looking for things to do, either prior to checking in or on their last day or whatever. And things really started picking up around six o'clock with people I guess coming in to do the restaurants and stuff. And the restaurants tend to get tend to get packed. But the shops that they've got mm-hmm. that that they have the original lineup on, the thing that Laurel and I were trying to figure out, while we were there this last time, is who buys some of these things? And let me give you an example. And this could be part of the problem, right? We went into the prescription sunglass place. Let's say you find a pair of sunglasses or you know glasses that you like. They will do it in your prescription. It takes seven days yeah. to get those back. And so for the vast majority of tourists, mm-hmm. you're not going to buy them there, right? You might find a style of frame that you like and then bring it back to your local optometrist to buy, but you're not going to buy them there wait a week and, and ship them. So there are some unusual places there that I don't know what you would buy. I, I, I will say the vast majority of the clothing retailers there are dealing in things like shoes and accessories, Yeah, which you would expect people might buy. There's a huge Uniqlo, uh, the mm-hmm. clothing designer, the fast fashion and they've got a lot of fun stuff. If somehow if you find yourself in Walt Disney World mm-hmm. and either the the airline lost your luggage or you <laughs> you plainly just forgot to pack you could buy an entire wardrobe's worth of stuff at Uniqlo for hundred bucks and be absolutely fine. I mean it's it's inexpensive clothes, it's all fast fashion stuff. But some of the stuff, yeah, I just don't get. Like there's a place that sells Hawaiian themed jewelry. I I I don't know that that's what I'm thinking of when I go to Orlando. There's another place that, and I forget the name of it, but they call themselves, quote, purveyors of whimsy. You know, and they've got these, like, signs mm-hmm. made of wood that are, like, you know, three feet across and four feet high with whimsical sayings on them. I, I don't know that that's the kind of thing you buy. You go or the, you go to Disney Springs and you say, you know, I, I, I really want this, and I can't get it anywhere else. I, I, and so you say that the, uh, that the foot traffic isn't there? So is it the sales yeah. or...
1: Are- well, uh, right now, it, it's sales. The concern at Disney is that they're just not getting the locals to come in the way they wanted. So, for example, the resort has just okayed a huge last-minute decorative program for both Halloween and Christmas.
0: For Where, oh where, is Disney going to find Christmas decorations, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> if only there was a warehouse... Yeah,
1: but this is stuff that's got to be new for there, and and that's the other thing. It it, initially Disney's thinking was, well, we don't have to do anything new for Disney Springs because it's new, you know, and and the fact that geez, we're not getting the foot traffic that we wanted, and. What had been a project for, say, year two, year three, custom decorations or distinct... Because face it, this is supposed to be Florida lakeside town with different neighborhoods. And and the initial plan was that each neighborhood was going to have different decorations because this is the more modern part of town or this is the part of town that was built in the 40s.
0: Yeah, so the landing would have their own decorations. There we go. Marketplace would have their own. Okay.
1: I'm hearing talk of moving the Osborne Lights... Over to Disney Springs, starting in 2017.
0: Number one, it would totally make sense. Uh, mm-hmm. Like you said, they could they could theme like an entire walkway. I'm just thinking, Jim, pedestrian freaking nightmare.
1: Well, not only that, Len, but but think about that. You know, just it isn't a question of doing this like on the streets of America, over at, at the Disney Hollywood Studios. Yeah. You now have to go to each individual lessee and explain that look, we're going to string lights. Over the front of your building, and when we do whatever we do every fifteen minutes or so, your sign has to go dark. That that thing you paid big bucks to custom fit that lures people into your shop
0: has that, to you know, go. That tells you what's behind the door. Yes, you're going to turn that off uh, two or three times an hour. I
1: mean, this is
0: uh, uh, this is what uh, I've <laughs>
1: I've been hearing from, from folks at the resort that it's from just a clearance point of view. You know, already you've got lessees who are upset about the notion that they're not getting the foot traffic, they're not getting the sales per square foot that they were initially promised. And to then go into the holiday season and say, oh, by the way, we're going to turn off your sign a couple of times an hour so we can do our light show.
0: I hate to say it. I'm looking at the map of Town Center and it, Mm. it would fit the old Streets of America really well if you go from like the the west side area mm. all the way through it's even got the little alleyway like they had in the, in the studios where i guess if you're walking east there's the walkway with oh it's sorry it's the uh, the information uh the information booth but that's like the anchors the alleyway that would be where the sort of the chinese laundry was mm. in the studios how it totally fit it would yeah totally it will. fit
1: all right, so it involves getting clearances from all of these lessees. And it's like 40
0: or 50, then that's never going to happen.
1: Yeah, and so that this may end up being something that they wanted to do in 2017 that then gets bumped to 2018. But ultimately, given that the Osborne Lights had been such a huge draw, and it was, it was a tradition, for Central Florida. I mean, what yeah. better way to get the locals to come out and sample your giant shopping center than to resurrect it there?
0: Can you imagine the parking nightmare?
1: Now, when you think about announcing a third parking garage directly across the street that's supposed to service both cast members and people coming yeah, to it.
0: 6,000 I, spots is not going to be enough. I mean, you think, think about how many spots there are at the studios. There's got to be 15,000 spots at the studios.
1: Uh, between... Four thousand at the Orange Garage. It's two thousand at the Lime Garage, mm-hmm. and the yet to be named Grapefruit facility. We're supposed to have two thousand as well. And I, my understanding is that there's an additional four or five thousand if you you factor in the giant lot that's out behind Cirque du Soleil.
0: Oh, the Strawberry Parking Lot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. God, it's Strawberry Parking Lot. Yeah. <laughs> I suddenly have a need for fruit salad, Len. I don't understand.
0: <laughs> I'm surprised they don't have uh, they do uh, kiwi or a uh, the Snozberry lot. We're <laughs> <That's right. laughs> parked in Snozberry Twelve.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You have to wonder how many of these folks mm-hmm. that they're beginning negotiations with about this. Will still be Lessies come 2018.
0: You think it signed one year or two year leases?
1: Well, my understanding is that it's a five year lease with an opt out at year two.
0: Yeah, there's some things in there. Like there's a Lily Pulitzer in there that uh, in a Kate Spade, and again, very heavy on accessories, very light on uh, clothes. But I think in in, the, in those cases, the Lily <laughs> Pulitzer crowd, the Kate Spade crowd, the mall of millennia is right down the road. You know, 10, 15 mm. minutes away. And I think yeah. that's uh, that's got wider selection and definitely a better shopping experience.
1: This is the Disney Express Universe you've got. You know, just today with the storm, you know, the parks are closed. Mm-hmm. Where is everybody going to go tonight that wants to eat or has been trapped in their hotel room? Yeah, well, I wonder if Disney's going to throw transportation open and allow people to head over to Disney Springs starting tonight.
0: Well, they got to staff it. That's the thing.
1: Well, there you go. Uh,
0: so they've got one more big opening, though. They've still got the Edison to open at the landing.
1: Yeah, and let's not forget about the Observatory.
0: Uh, the Observatory, yeah, and then uh, Paddlefish, which any minute now should be uh, should be open as well. I, I don't think Paddlefish is actually going to be that successful. We'll oh, say.
1: let me, one final little piece of info here that I, I just got handed to me, and in fact, you and I both know they've been having some issues with Paddlefish. Mm-hmm. But you, you've heard about the expansion of Golden Oaks.
0: No, there's a housing development. The private
1: community. I've
0: been there. I've seen houses. I've been in houses there. Really? Okay. One of, one of our uh, one of one of our common friends. I won't mention their name, but uh, mm-hmm. has a house there.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh,
0: neighbor. Neighbor, by the way, is Pat C. Jack. <laughs> Apparently, a big Disney fan. Yeah. So wow. it's it's nice.
1: It's, it's nice. More to the point, it's been ridiculously successful. The ten year plan for this is it's going to be five times as big.
0: Oh, because they they were talking about a, a second or a third phase, right? Uh, when I was ah, oh, same concept.
1: Very much so, very much so. They have high demand for these exclusive neighborhood at Walt Disney World, you know, within spitting distance of the Magic Kingdom, you know, highly stylized homes. But the problem yeah. is, of course, it's like these people are paying top dollar to live on property, and they want perks that are commiserate with, with, you know, I live at Disney World. I should be able to have exclusive access because I have my home here, you know, and I pay top dollar for it. Yeah,
0: they've already got some things, right? They've already got shuttle services to the parks. They've got, uh, I think, their own mini private restaurant, although I don't know how that's staffed, and a, and a couple of other things.
1: Well, if you're going to put five times as many homes in, your little mini restaurants aren't going to cut it. No, no. So, we have the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World coming up in 2021, and we'll be well into phase two. My understanding is phase three will have begun construction of Golden Oaks at that time. These folks are going to be looking for some place special to dine. Mm-hmm. And when you think of someplace special in dining at Disney, what name comes to mind but Club Thirty Three?
0: You think they're going to do a Club Thirty Three?
1: They're not only going to do a Club Thirty Three; they are actually talking about much of the tradition of the nineteen hundred lounge I that's really over at like it- that bar, yeah. Right, exclusive dining, a Club Thirty Three level experience at all four of the Disney World theme parks, plus.
0: Disney Springs. You mean for uh, for Golden Oak people or for Well, you know, the
1: idea is it? that you would cr- you would start there obviously with the folks who live in that development and say, "Hey, this would be available and at an introductory rate, you know, because you are our super deluxe special Disney fan and then to throw it open to a select few, but you can't do a single club 33.
0: Oh, there's too many people.
1: That's it, exactly. It involves the company circling back on ideas that were abandoned decades ago. Like, for example, how they were going to build David Copperfield's Magic Underground <laughs> on that hillside yeah. overlooking Fantasmic. Yeah. That expansion pad is still sitting there. When that park opens and it has Star Wars experience and Toy Story Land and becomes the super hot facility that they believe it's going to be. You know, the notion of that you could put an exclusive Disney-themed dining experience where the Magic Underground was going to go. And I've even heard talk of the Ratatouille ride from Disneyland Paris that, you know, is supposed to be a 50th anniversary offering for Walt Disney World.
0: We've hinted at it, but we haven't said it. Oh, well, okay. then. (laughs) Zero is out of the bag. Okay. I think, I think I think when you originally told it to me, it was only like three people in the Disney company knew that it was approved. Yeah. You were protecting so, a source who uh, who would have uh, would have said that it was uh, it was coming. That was like oh, that was months ago.
1: Well, evidently it's moved far enough along now that they're actually talking about the space upstairs. That it would make sense if they were going to do a Club 33 type restaurant for Epcot, one especially that that would allow people much the same way as when their Fantasmic is being presented.
0: Oh, doing oh with uh with whatever's going to replace Illuminations over at France. There we go. Well, so that's interesting because you know Monsieur Paul gets good ratings from unofficial guide readers. I personally don't think it's that good. I would be much more interested in seeing it as a club. The uh, the reason for that is this. Just purely from an economics perspective, they would make vastly more money turning that into a Club 33 experience than they would keeping it as Monsieur Paul. Because you remember back in uh, the early part of this decade, in the early 2010s, mm-hmm. you could still get on the waiting list for Club 33 for something between ten and $15,000. Yep. And it, it came with a number of perks. Among those were, I think, what, eight Premier Prep passes. So for people like us, well, mm-hmm. where we could write that off as a business expense and then get the, the passes, you could kind of squint your eyes and see your way to paying that kind of money just to be able to, you know, do entertaining and as a, you know, as a perk or whatever. But then they, they upped it. What's the, what's the current rate? Like $30,000, $40,000? Yeah.
1: Coupled with the fact that now the bringing guests into the park element has been pulled off the table. I mean, a lot of what made Club 33 special, but ironically enough, they changed it to Disneyland because the belief was that Club 33 members were kind of abusing it. We're selling it out to, Third parties, or getting family members in, or it just—it it was one of these things where Disney felt the need to change it, and actually managed to offend a lot of the old-time club members. But the irony was, the waiting list was so long it didn't matter. Those that left. Were replaced and look, there's a Club 33 at the Tokyo Disneyland. This is a concept that has traveled before, and it's always been kind of surprising that Walt Disney World has never had this sort of thing. In fact, how long did the Empress Lily sit there? And you know, you could have this premium dining express experience up on the in the Empress room,
0: and that those for ages, yeah.
1: Yeah, and you've got things like Victoria Albert's. You do have these, these premium
0: experiences? Oh, Victoria Albert's, I have a story about this because I ate okay. there on my last trip too. Oh, okay. So, okay. a couple of interesting things. Went to Victoria Albert's this last trip because I hadn't uh, hadn't been there in a while. I have this idea. Mm-hmm. I remember the, the Michelin Star guide people, right? Laurel and I were in Vegas uh, a couple months ago, and we mm-hmm. were looking for Michelin Star rated restaurants in Las Vegas because every once in a while I try and. Eat at a one star restaurant just to remind myself of <laughs> what the standard No, no. So, no, so, no, I get that. I do. I do. Get, to I, remind I get myself it. of what the standards are. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a one star restaurant by Michelin is considered a very good restaurant. And mm-hmm. There are a number of them in New York, and these are not expensive places. Are, you, know, you could probably get out for dinner under 60 bucks mm-hmm. at them, but there's definitely under 100 per person. It's a quality stuff. The thing I was looking for in Vegas, and, and Michelin doesn't rate Vegas anymore, but I was trying to find a one star there, and I couldn't. It occurred to me that Victorian Alberts gets awards from like AAA and from Zagat and from other places, mm-hmm. but I was trying to figure out how you would compare Victorian Alberts to a Michelin star restaurant. And the question is this, if Michelin gave stars to restaurants in Florida, which they don't, mm-hmm. but if they did, would Victorian Alberts get one? And if it got one, could it get two? And remember three is the the highest number of stars. So if Victorian Alberts was going to be rated, what would it be rated at? And so we went back and, and sampled the menu. And I think it's somewhere between one and two. If Michelin actually gave stars to restaurants in Florida, and again they don't, they cover like New York, Chicago, and I think parts of LA. Michelin would probably give Victorian and Albert somewhere between one and two stars, depending on how they evaluate. I think it's definitely one. But here's the interesting thing. Do you know anything at all about wine?
1: It comes in bottles, and the, it involves corks.
0: And, and there are colors, right? There we go. So that's basically the extent of what I know about wine as well. If you told me this was a you know, uh, Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. I could probably guess from the, the fact that the word noir is in there that it's a red wine versus a white. And it, I think some, but not all, Chardonnays are white. I don't know anything about wine. And I've, I've read these studies where people, like Consumer Reports, do blind taste tests where they'll mm-hmm. take wine experts, blindfold them, and then ask them how expensive the wine is that they're drinking. And invariably what you hear is, you know, most wine experts prefer this $10 bottle of wine to this $100 bottle of wine, right? Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, at Victoria and Alberts, we had a sommelier, and we got the wine pairings with each course. So we're about halfway through… The meal, and I think we're, we're doing veal, we're doing like little veal cheeks and veal cutlets, and uh, the sommelier comes over and he's explaining the wine, and you know it's this very it is this red wine that he had chosen to go with this particular thing because of the acidity and the fruitiness and the sugar content of both the sauce and the the wine. I'm like, okay, that's great, you know, thank you for the explanation. Can you bring me a wine that absolutely does not go with this dish? Something where if I drink it, I will say, my God, what have you done? Jim, he looked at me. <laughs> he actually walked over and got the manager, Israel. Israel, the manager, comes over and says, I understand you have a request. I'm like, yeah, here's what I want to do. I, you know, And I told him, I was like, the sommelier, I'm explaining to the sommelier, and I'm explaining to Israel, the manager. I'm like, I, I, no, you, could, you could tell me whatever you want about the wine, but and I am not entirely convinced that I can tell the difference. What I want you to do is bring me a wine, a red wine, because we're comparing resin and rice, that absolutely no one in their right mind would ever drink with this dish, dish. And then I want you to explain to me why it tastes bad. So they, they talk amongst themselves. They come back. They're all, and I'm like, look, dude, I'll pay for the wine. Whatever it costs, hmm. I will pay for the wine. Just, I want to know. So he thinks about it for a second. And I mean, you could tell this dude was really thinking. He's going through the list in his head. Mm-hmm. He's consulting the, the phone book size wine list. That they have a Victorian Alberts, and finally he picks something, and he comes back. He's like, "Okay, here's what I've picked," and uh, you know, it's this French wine. He's like, "Absolutely will not go." And Jim, I drank it, and it was like, it was like drinking a combination of paint thinner and you know the aftertaste you get from cherry cough syrup. The aftertaste, not the taste itself, like the highly medicinal, up in your nose, sour palate. It was like that, only in wine form. It was amazingly bad.
1: So th- this bottle of Chateau Ripple had been sitting <laughs> out no, no. of by the dumpster. Yeah, it,
0: was, it, was, it wasn't vinegar at all. It was, mm-hmm. you know, so it wasn't spoiled wine. It was just a wine whose fruitiness, acidity, sugar, and sugar content did not go with with veal, the veal sauce, mm-hmm. and so. I sip it and I you know and you can tell it I mean immediately it doesn't go first of all you know like when you're when you're eating food there's you can actually there's a feel of the the food on your tongue mm-hmm. right if you're having like pasta for example there's sort of a creaminess to the sauce sort of this this wine pretty much stripped everything away from the, my tongue so I was like rubbing it with 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 paint thinner or with alcohol it was everything that was in my mouth came out yeah and then it just got sour and bitter and with a medicinal taste at the end but as soon as I drank it, the dude looked at me like, "Okay, I, you know, I I I got it right. The psalm got it right, and uh, so he was super super happy after that. And uh, <laughs> so he's like, Look, no one no one's ever asked me this before.' And so we then he got to explain why he chose it and mm-hmm. how he used it. And I think it really entertained him for the evening. It was sort of like well, no no, one's no ever
1: doubt asked me this. it's weird that you actually in a weird sort of way let him prove how knowledgeable yeah, he was. And
0: that's, that's the thing. Yeah.
1: The whole notion of, I, wait, I can do this. That really is one of those rub your head and pat your tummy moments.
0: Yeah, the exact opposite. And it's, uh, you know, I think I think he enjoyed it. He said it made him think, mm-hmm. and it was definitely not a, a normal request, but just the fact that the manager came over and said, I understand you have a request, sir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did you ever hear the Steve Martin bit about going to a French restaurant and Requesting a shoe with cheese and then jamming <laughs> it in my face. That, <laughs> well, no, that's, no. What, that's what you asked for. You know, you speak French poorly. That that can happen. But
0: so I, encur- I encourage our listeners. Next time you go somewhere, they've got either a wine pairing or a wine list, or they've got a sommelier, and they they make a recommendation. Just ask them if you could try a wine, if they could recommend a wine that absolutely does not go with whatever you're eating, and then have them explain why. You'll learn a little bit about wine. If it's a place that you go to regularly, it will identify you as somebody who's interested in what the, the sommelier has to say, and I think it, uh, I think it's an enlightening experience for uh, for everyone. So let's just so get a chance. Go ahead and do it. That
1: is a great story. I don't think I can top that. So I, 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 <laughs>
0: All right, I think f-
1: we'll consider this the dessert portion of our food show, <laughs> and I'll just hand you this wafer-thin mint, Len, and, you know, just back away slowly. <laughs>
0: All right, right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim. We are produced fabulously by one Aaron Adams. Please go into iTunes and Google Play and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len, and we will see you on the next show.